Good afternoon, dear listeners. Today we have a special bonus episode. This is from Dr. Harvey's fictional Star Trek true crime podcast, Memory Gamma, which we are folding into Drs. Harvey and Nelson's Dispatch Ajax. As said in the Trek universe, we cover villains from the shows and movies as complex beings and their place in the big picture. I can give you my complete assurance that the show will be back to normal next week. I've still got the greatest enthusiasm and confidence in the mission. library computer data. Regeneration in general Terran biology and exobiology mainly refers to the morphogenic processes that characterize the phenotypic plasticity of traits, allowing multicellular organisms to repair and maintain the integrity of their physiological and morphological states. In other words, wounds heal and cells build themselves. All organic life has this ability fundamentally. Tissues in most humanoid organisms are generated, maintained, and repopulated by stem cells. 
These are specialized cells capable of cell renewal and can differentiate into different cell types in the humanoid body. Stem cells have several differentiation programs. Therefore, they possess information to allow them to become any cell in the body or a restricted cell type with a specialized function. These abilities make stem cells extremely useful for biomedical applications and the study of them led to the creation of biomimetic gel. But that regeneration varies between tissue types. Skeletal muscles have some ability to regenerate and form new muscle tissue, while cardiac muscle cells don't regenerate at all. Yet, in all cases, a sort of protocol is embedded into their genomes that tells these cells to downgrade the renewal process slowly over time. A seemingly insufferable trait that I thankfully don't experience. Strangely, Akarin was different. Though he was born a normal human child, his body lacked the triggers for aging, and his natural regeneration was universal throughout every cell. So too is the genetic information required to regenerate every single type of cell. In effect, as long as his body was more or less intact, he could not die from disease or injury. He was an immortal, and there had been only one. He was born in the year 3834 BCE, in what would later be dubbed Mesopotamia, Greek for the land between two rivers. For 10,000 years before he was struck down, Akarin's ancestors had settled here, nestled where fresh water flowed from the snow atop the Zargus Mountains to what would be called the Persian Gulf. They came just after the glaciers of the last great ice age had melted away, flooding the basin and creating this great fertile crescent. Akarin was blissfully unaware of this, of course. He was always told it was a product of good favor by the storm god who lived in the Taurus Mountains. The god's name is lost to history, but that would never really matter. Akarin would live to see his people worship Ishkar and Adad, then Marduk, a patron god in each city, as they rose and fell. His people celebrated the role their god played in their lives. To the sound of music, hymns, and prayers, the god idol was washed, clothed, perfumed, fed, and entertained by minstrels and dancers. In clouds of incense, meals of bread, cakes, fruit, and honey were set before the deity, along with offerings of beer, wine, and water. On feast days, the statues of the deities were taken in solemn procession through the courtyard and the streets of the city, accompanied by singing and dancing. His people believed in the absolute truth of their gods, and Akarn lived long enough to see those truths come and go like the seasons. Zeus, Jupiter, Yahweh, Jehovah, Allah would all be praised for the first time in the lands he traversed over the centuries. He had lived to see the invention of the written word and the wheel brought from Sumer. He also saw the rise of the world's first king. He doesn't know it yet, but the template for the next thousand years of his life were all laid out by the Fertile Crescent. Nearly a millennium after his fall, he found himself in the Middle East. There was a whole world to see, and Akarin sought knowledge. Here he would see the first pyramid rise in Egypt, and the march of the war wagons by the Andronovo. And it was here that Akarin would first become legend. Word began to spread of the undying man as he wandered the lands, and tales of his journey would be woven into local folklore. Many stories true, many molded to fit one narrative or another, the man of great age and wisdom would become known by a new name for the first time in his long life, Methuselah. 
Slowly, he became aware of the power of legend and legacy. His power could scroll his name across the face of the earth. Yet, this fame was not for his accomplishments. He had none. Yes, he had fallen in love and married, a successful, fruitful life for a mortal man. But he did so only to watch them grow old and die, many times over. To truly achieve greatness, he would have to be thought of simply as a man, conquer his challenges, then move on to a new name and a new life. This he did for generations. He lived as a craftsman and an artisan. He walked with Moses as a man of curiosity and a student of the world's emerging religions. Over the years, he became a powerful merchant, his talent for commerce a natural one. With this skill, he amassed a great fortune, great influence, and great power. By the 8th century BCE, he sat on the throne of a vast united monarchy, stretching from the Dead Sea to Damascus. He was a great king whose people were prosperous, at the center of an epic trade network from Arabia to the northern Levant. It sustained trade with Greece, Cyprus, and Egypt, as well as its future conqueror, the Assyrian Empire. The scribes who wrote the tales of his reign had agendas of their own and sought to minimize Akaran's accomplishments. They exaggerated his tales and projected them backward, crediting them to Solomon whose rule 200 years earlier was already rife with myth and story. Akarin would be legend for the rest of time, but it would belong to another man and another name. When it was time to once again move on, Akarin went out on a journey of self-discovery and contemplation. He had been a beloved and powerful king, yet he felt unfulfilled, unsure of his own worldview. For centuries he again lived as a simple man and a student of philosophy. Living in Greece, he studied with Socrates himself. They were both former soldiers, though Socrates had challenged the righteousness of his mission and became a conscientious objector. Akarin decided to forego the tale of how his military career ended. They became friends and together debated the existential framework for morality, the Athenian attitude that might is right, and the merits of democracy. But Akarin did not agree with Socrates' worldview. He had lived long enough to see humanity's true nature. Men were greedy, jealous, petty, selfish, and cruel. They would never find true peace if left to their own devices. They needed a strong hand to hold them in line. They needed a unified vision to keep them from warring with each other. The world was a savage and barbaric place. They needed infrastructure, guidance, leadership, wisdom and only he could bring all of it to the world in the only language to which they responded. The lives and exploits of many historical figures from days of yore, like Solomon, were detailed mainly after the fact. Some accounts were from first-hand witnesses, but they were often impossible to corroborate and based on exaggeration, and either included or omitted to fit a specific narrative. None more so than Akarin's most ambitious persona, the hegemon of the Hellenic League, Alexandros III, known to the Western world as Alexander the Great. We have ancient narratives of Alexander's life, written between 30 BCE and the 3rd century CE, hundreds of years after his death. 
The earliest known account is by the Greek historian Diodorus, but we also have histories written by other historians, including Roman ones. They interpreted written accounts written shortly after Alexander's death, penned by those who fought alongside the king on his campaigns. It's unclear how reliable these narratives are, however, as they're mingled with propaganda of various Greek and Roman states who were ruled by emperors that used Alexander's image to cement their own power. In order to get a fuller picture, historians interpret sources from other regions of Alexander the Great's empire, like Babylon, for instance. Alexander's true legacy began at the wedding of Alexander I of Epirus and Cleopatra of Macedon, who was King Philip II's daughter by his fourth wife, Olympias. Make sense? While the king was entering unprotected into the town's theater, he was killed by Pausanias of Orestes, one of his seven bodyguards. The assassin immediately tried to escape and reached his associates who were waiting for him with horses at the entrance to Aegae. He was pursued by three of Philip's bodyguards, tripped on a vine, and died by their hands. Now legend has it that Alexander, influenced by his mother Olympias, moved swiftly to seize power. He had his other siblings, who had claims to the throne, executed, along with loyalists to Philip. Anyone with close ties to his father, including the assassin, were dead by his command. Many scholars have postulated the involvement of Olympias as architect in a scheme to raise her son to king. And many romantic versions of this story exist, but we know now the truth is likely that, no matter the queen's role, Karin was the ultimate mastermind behind the sweeping coup. After millennia of study of warfare and rule, he was a strategic mind the likes of which had never been seen on earth. It's likely that he infiltrated the inner circle of a kingdom in constant turmoil and manipulated a series of events to fall like dominoes. He would assume the identity of Alexander, who he likely sent to his grave as well. It was bloodthirsty, cold, and cruel, but Akarin likely saw it as a necessary evil. The endgame? To once again assume the role of king, and once again unite the divergent. But this time, he wouldn't settle for the local warring factions of Greece. This time, he sought to unite the world. Alexander's legacy was both far-reaching and profound. First, his father was able to unite the Greek city-states, and Alexander destroyed the Persian Empire forever. More importantly, Alexander's conquests spread Greek culture, also known as Hellenism, across his empire. In fact, Alexander's reign marked the beginning of a new era known as the Hellenistic Age because of the powerful influence that Greek culture had on the other peoples of the world. Without Akarin's ambition, Greek ideas and culture might as well have remained confined to Greece. But as nebulous as his influence became, every accomplishment became stained with blood. He possessed a ferocious temper, and from time to time would arbitrarily murder close advisors and even friends. Also, toward the end of his many campaigns, he senselessly slaughtered thousands of those whose crime was only being in his way. Alexander solidified his authority at home and violently crushed a revolt by the Greek city-state of Thebes. Then, he made plans to liberate the Greek cities in Asia Minor, 
from Persia and punished the Persians for destroying Athens 150 years earlier. The Persians were ruled by Darius III, known as the Great King. In the spring of 334 BCE, Alexander led a Macedonian force of 35,000 men across the narrow strait that separates Europe from Asia. When he reached the other side, he drove his javelin into the ground, symbolizing that his new empire would be won by the spear. Not a subtle man. Alexander had little trouble defeating the Persians in Asia Minor, though they were a long-time feared superpower. But when Alexander and his army reached the city of Gordium, he was confronted with a possibly apocryphal puzzle. In Gordium, there was a chariot secured by a complicated knot tied by a vague ancient king. According to legend, the one who could untie this knot would rule the world. Many had tried, but all had failed to untie the Gordian knot. Alexander solved the puzzle in his own direct way. He sliced the knot in two with his sword. More Arthurian parallels. Alexander then led his army south through Jerusalem into Egypt, which surrendered without a fight. There he consulted an Egyptian oracle who, Alexander said, referred to him as the son of Zeus. But isn't everybody? Before leaving Egypt, Alexander ordered the building of a new city, Alexandria. Why to the east? To the point, Coronas. We have conquered the coastline from Syria to Egypt and a thousand leagues deep. I say it is enough to protect Greece. I say it is not. Greece is not safe until King Darius is destroyed. Every time we have him within our reach, he retreats further into Persia. We cannot chase after him forever. The men are exhausted by these endless campaigns. If we continue on, we eventually will destroy our own army. And if we stop now, Persia will only grow strong again to start another war. Is that what you want? I want peace as much as you do, and we can have it for the asking. Darius would be glad to compromise. Let him keep Eastern Persia. And let us keep what we have. I will not compromise with Darius. Alexander, there are not enough men in all of Greece to conquer Persia and to hold it. I did not cross the sea to conquer Persia. I came to put an end to the barbarism that rots this land and has plagued Greece for 200 years. I came to put an end to wars forever. We cannot conquer the world! And we shall build a new one. In 331 BCE, Alexander returned to Mesopotamia and decisively defeated Darius III, who fled the battlefield. The conquering king soon captured the Mesopotamian capital and proclaimed himself the king of Babylon, king of Asia, king of the four corners of the world. Now he ruled over the lands where he was once struck down in battle so very long ago. Now, if blood was to be spilled here, it would be at his command. 
Alexander next entered the homelands of Persia, he graciously spared the capital of Susa when it wisely surrendered. He burned, however, the great city palace of Persepolis in revenge for the Persian destruction of Athens 150 years earlier. The threat from Darius had been removed when he was murdered by his own governors, hoping to gain favor with Alexander. In return, Alexander married a woman named Roxanne, the daughter of one of Darius's satraps. With no major army to oppose him, Alexander conquered lands near the Caspian Sea. Continuing his conquests, he drove eastward into what would become Afghanistan, and finally across the Indus River into western India. Alexander wanted to go farther, but he stopped when his men complained that they would never see home again. Having conquered the known world in only ten years, Alexander led his men back to Persia. At Susa, he organized a mass marriage ceremony between thousands of his men and Persian women. Although married to Roxanne, he married a daughter of Darius. The mixed marriages at Susa were part of Alexander's idea to fuse the Macedonian, Greek, and Asian peoples into one universal empire. He founded over 70 cities in an empire that stretched across three continents the entire area from Greece in the west, north to the Danube, and south into Egypt, and as far east as the Indian Punjab. They were all linked together in a vast international network of trade and commerce. This was united by a common Greek language and culture, while the king himself adopted foreign customs in order to rule his millions of ethnically diverse subjects. Alexander the Great managed to assemble the first transcontinental empire. Still, at some point during his campaigns, he seemed to have an epiphany. Perhaps he finally saw the true consequences of never-ending violence. Perhaps he realized that peace couldn't be bought with blood. Having lost meaning in his conquests, he faked his death and swapped places with a fallen soldier so that he may fade away into anonymity. But his legend would be as immortal as he. Wars were fought over the possession of his corpse, one that wasn't even his. Romanticized versions of Alexander's conquests became abundant. They included him venturing into far-flung mythical places using a flying machine, which will come back later. Learning about his death from a talking tree going to the depths of the sea in a submarine and fighting mythical beasts in India with his army. Knowing now what we do know about his life, perhaps the more fantastical notions of Alexander's life were all too real, stranger indeed, than fiction. This would be the last time Akarn would be known as a man of violence, but not the last time he would be known as legend. During the time of Jesus of Nazareth, someone recorded his secret for the first time in centuries. Over the years he had learned to live a full, natural life. He would fall in love, have children, and grow old. When it was time to move on, he would allow himself to die, in a manner of speaking. And his body would return to the age he was the first time he was struck down in Mesopotamia. This way, no one asked questions, and he could move on without further disrupting the lives of those who knew him. 
This time, though, he had not been as careful in hiding his immortality, and witnesses noticed his rising from death. This would come to be known for thousands of years as the raising of Lazarus. After the fall of the Roman Empire, Akarin found himself in Europe, using his vast knowledge and experience to learn about and manipulate the elements of the natural world. These early experiments in chemistry and physics would see him woven into the vast narratives of the Arthurian legend as the wizard Merlin. It's here he would try to guide a young king into uniting his peoples. Perhaps, he thought, what he lacked as Solomon and Alexander was the wisdom and perspective of the man he was today. By the European Renaissance, Akarn had shed any designs on changing the world through rule by another. Instead, he would devote the rest of his life, as long as it is, to improving the human condition through art, science, and the creative spirit. It's here he would bring his most important work to the world, and would never shed a drop of blood. As Leonardo da Vinci, he was able to pursue all of his great passions and pass them on to the rest of mankind in a way that would leave him just as remembered as Alexander. He excelled in civil engineering, chemistry, geology, geometry, hydrodynamics, mathematics, mechanical engineering, optics, physics, pyrotechnics, and zoology. As an engineer, he conceived ideas vastly ahead of his own time conceptually inventing the parachute, the helicopter, an armored fighting vehicle, the use of solar power, a calculator, and a rudimentary theory of plate tectonics. In practice, he greatly advanced the state of knowledge in the fields of anatomy, astronomy, and the study of water, the definition of a Renaissance man. As a researcher, Leonardo divided nature and phenomena into ever smaller segments, concretely with his knives and measuring instruments, and intellectually with formulas and number to wrest the secrets of creation from it. The smaller the particles runs the assumption, the closer one will get to the solution of the enigmas. His work would change humankind's understanding of the world for centuries to follow. Years later, he would return to the realm of music. Living among some of the great thinkers of the time, Akarin thrived in Vienna as Johannes Brahms. Brahms had been considered by his contemporaries and by later writers, both as a traditionalist and an innovator. His music is firmly rooted in the structures of compositional techniques of the classical masters. The diligent, highly constructed nature of Brahms' work was a starting point and an inspiration for a generation of composers. Embedded within his meticulous structures, however, are deeply romantic motifs. He was, after all, a man capable of great love. Though his heart had been broken ad infinitum. This, he decided, would be his legacy. Not to improve the world by conquering it, but giving humankind the knowledge, tools, and empathy to make the world a better place themselves. 
but after all he had seen and experienced, Akarn had never given up hope that his goal could be achieved. Until, that is, the atomic horror of Earth's Third World War. Records from this era are partial at best, but we know now he was living as a scientist named Abramson and held some level of notoriety in the scientific community. Humanity had finally pushed itself to the brink. Extinction was a true possibility, and it was by its own hand. He had seen too much death, too much violence. There was no more room in his heart for the rest of humankind. He had given them enough, he thought. After first contact and the proliferation of warp, Akarin left his home of millennia for the stars, just as he had wandered into the desert so many years before, to find purpose. In 2269, the Federation starship Enterprise arrived in orbit over the small planet Holberg 917G, in dire need of that planet's Rytalin deposit, an antitoxin for Rogelian fever, which had infected the entire crew. They were greeted rudely by a hovering security drone, held in check by its stoic master, the immortal man, now known as Flint. Though he had no desire for their presence, Flint introduced himself to the landing party. After much insistence by Captain James Kirk, Flint invited them to his home and promised to aid in the Mercy mission. They would be welcomed to the Rytalon as long as they were out of orbit in two hours' time. In 2239, living as the interstellar financier Brack, Flint bought the planet Holberg in the Omega system a place he could call his own with no baggage of history or legacy. It was uninhabited, and he made great effort to keep up that appearance. Flint built a magnificent home on the planet, where he lived a reclusive life. He cared very little for the state of humankind. He convinced himself. Still, after being married hundreds of times, only to watch them grow old, die, or move on before they became suspicious. Flint still had great need to love and to be loved. His solution was to use his vast knowledge to create a partner who was equally immortal. An android, who he would name Reyna. The Reyna model would be a marvel of cybernetic achievement, akin to a Sung-type creation. Yet. His goal was not to build a machine that was programmed to simulate emotion. He dreamed of a synthetic being who would evolve into emotions of her own. She would fall in love with him, naturally. Flint engineered a succession of female androids in the quest for an undying love partner. Each bore the name Reyna, and the final, perfect manifestation, Reyna 17, was not allowed to know of her failed predecessors. He had sheltered her from others. Perhaps he was afraid her development might be tainted by the violence and greed of humankind. Still, hoping to initiate Reina 17's emotional evolution, Flint allowed her to interact with the Enterprise's away team. Flint seemed to encourage encounters between Kirk and Reina, 
having them play billiards or having them dance while Lieutenant Commander Spock played an arrangement he identified as written by Brahms in modern ink. Kirk remarked to Flint that he had said something offhand about savagery. But Earth had been a beacon of peace for nearly 200 years by that point. When had Flint last visited Earth, he wondered. Flint noted that the Enterprise itself was bristling with weapons, and he speculated that its mission was to colonize, exploit, and destroy if necessary. Kirk himself bristled. Their missions were peaceful, and their weapons were used strictly for defense. If they were truly barbarians, they wouldn't have asked for the Rytalon. They would have simply taken it. Flint's own introduction to the landing party lacked a certain courtesy when they arrived. He quit. Dr. McCoy returned to the status report while Kirk and Reyna were lost in a moment. The Rytalon contained Irelium in quantities sufficient enough to render the antidote useless. Flint offered to go with the drone M4 and collect more samples to screen himself. He offered to let McCoy join them. Curious, Kirk entered Flint's laboratory where he was discovered by Reyna. An adept multitasker, Kirk managed to flirt with the android and still grill her about a closed door at the far end of the lab. Reyna did not know its purpose, as Flint warned her never to enter. Why then was she there, Kirk pressed. She often came to this solemn place when she was troubled. But was she truly happy here with Flint? She was quick to praise her partner as the kindest man in the galaxy. But if so, Kirk wondered, why is she so troubled? Kirk seized upon the moment her guard had finally been lowered and leaned in to kiss her, just as M4 arrived and prepared to defend Reyna's honor. Reyna ordered the drone to stop, but it paid no heed. Just as it prepared to fire on Kirk, Spock leapt into action and vaporized it with his phaser. The robot had been programmed to defend the house and its occupants, not anticipating Kirk's snooping. Yet, Raina reasoned to Flint that she could not have summoned M4, as she was not frightened. Had he sent the drone to kill Kirk? At first, Flint was pleased with the results of his experiments. But the sentiment melted quickly. Kirk had provided the final step in her creation, stirring her emotions to life. Now, Flint prepared to put Kirk and the Enterprise in suspended animation for a thousand years or more as Raina learned to love him instead. Despite Flint's intent to keep her creation a secret, Raina learned the truth, forcing Flint to release the Enterprise. Kirk and Flint grappled in a jealous rage. Though the fight was pointless, neither man could tear themselves away. Even after millennia, Flint was vulnerable to humankind's most basic flaws. For Raina, it was a shocking introduction to the nature of the human condition. Yes, she believed she loved Kirk, but for Flint, she felt gratitude, loyalty, and a different form of love. The stress of those two forces pulled her mind apart. 
forced to choose between her suitors and unable to hurt either, she simply ceased to function, much to Flint's horror. He had seen lovers die. This was nothing new. But Reyna was meant to live forever. Yet she would never be safe from that which Flint thought he had finally fled, the selfishness of human beings. The sad irony of Flint's tale was discovered by the Enterprise's chief medical officer, Dr. Leonard McCoy. The special conditions that facilitated Flint's biological renewal were only possible on Earth. Yakaran, the immortal man, was dying. Even if Reyna had lived, it would only be to see him grow old, frail, and to die. He had lived a thousand lives. Soldier, artist, impresario, emperor, husband, lover, leader of men. He had done nearly everything in the human experience. Except this. The notion of immortality was first introduced in the Epic of Gilgamesh, a tale that inspired nearly every legend and religion ever told. Written in the very fertile crescent where Karn was struck down in battle. A story second in greatness only compared to the life of Akaran. With everything he had given humankind, as well as all he had taken, he had crafted the greatest human story in history. Legacy no one knew was his. As Alexander, he allegedly claimed he would rather live a short life of glory than a long one of obscurity. Akaran had somehow lived both. Now he was mortal, alone, in an empty house, on an empty world. The most famous man no one knew. and all related marks, logos, and characters are solely owned by CBS Studios, Inc. This fan production is not endorsed by, sponsored by, nor affiliated with CBS, Paramount Pictures, or any other Star Trek franchise, and is a non-commercial fan-made film intended for recreational use. No commercial exhibition or distribution is permitted. No alleged independent rights will be asserted against CBS or Paramount Pictures.